Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham, a show at the intersection of sports, sports media, Hollywood, and hopefully life itself. I'm the executive producer and host, Ed. In this episode, we huddle with director T.J. Martin, a colleague and a friend who happens to have won an Oscar for his work on Undefeated, a doc about a high school football team in Memphis, Tennessee, and an Emmy for LA-92, a brilliant piece of work detailing the riots that broke out in Los Angeles after the police who beat Rodney King were acquitted of any wrongdoing. But those shiny awards are not why I asked him to be on the show. T.J. is incredibly articulate and has a knack for discussing deep and meaningful topics in a thoughtful and very relatable way. And we do dive in, so a couple of warnings. Along with a couple of curse words, we talk about spousal abuse as part of our discussion of his film, Tina, a documentary about Tina Turner. This is From Grunge to High School Football with T.J. Martin. What are you guys working on these days? We just started a um, five-part series for Showtime on... um, I mean, I'm always hesitant to say grunge because you don't want to say the G word, but it is about (laughs) grunge. Uh, it's really the Seattle music scene in the late 80s and early 90s and kind of obviously its impact on culture. But we've got a pretty particular take on it, um, looking at it from the inside out and kind of telling a little bit more of a coming of age story hmm. because of uh, ended up happening was so unprecedented and will likely never happen again in terms of a specific region and a regional sound exploding and having kind of a global uh, impact, you know, just because it had the ability to kind of incubate and over years and years and years and years. And that doesn't, if anything cool happens now, it's just thrown on social media and it's already kind of diluted its cultural potential. So we, you know, all those elements are super interesting to us, but you know, as we all know, also it was kind of, it's all, it's very tragic, right? Mm, A bunch of 20 somethings making decisions at early in life that kind of determined their fate and many of them couldn't handle it. Uh, and uh, many OD'd and committed suicide and uh, the stakes are, you know, I think people forget how high the stakes are in this particular story. Yeah. Um, and then those that survived, the big part of it is reclamation, right? Like those that survived are still trying to make sense of what happened to their community and their friends and their fellow musicians and still processing it even at like, you know, 60 years old now trying mm-hmm. to make sense of, you know, how do you reclaim your identity in the face of tragedy? How do you reclaim your identity? And when your livelihood may have been commodified or how do you reclaim your identity when you didn't end up being famous that you thought you were like, you thought you were being yeah. famous, your friends did like all that stuff is still very raw. Um, when you ingrate and, in, you know, when you in, engage with the community. So I don't think anyone's really explored that, uh, you know, that particular point of view within this, you know, the world of kind of 90s grunge, you know, mayhem. (laughs) And you have been from Seattle and your mom and dad (laughs) being a part of a band, Bam Bam, that in many ways helped start that movement, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think I was just talking to someone about this the other day. I, I, uh, they were part of the scene. There's no doubt about that. But I think it's been I think in order to 
the way that my mom's story has been pushed, it's just been the the moniker of like, you know, the godmother of grunge. I think that's just an easy label. But as we all know, like no single individual helps like starts a movement. It's just kind of a collection of circumstances and a lot of different people and kind of things happening in concert uh, that then kind of create a movement. But there's no doubt. Yes, they were in the scene in the early 80s, like before grunge became a thing. They were active like 82, 83, up to like 85, 86. And then they went to Europe for a couple of years. In mm. those like two years in Europe, like 86, 87, 88, somewhere in there, uh, that's when actually the scene started popping off. So when they came back, their like friends were signed, and, like people were famous and they just kind of like missed the window. But yeah, they were, I definitely, like I grew up very much in that community. You know, I went back, um, uh, there was a a couple of articles about your mom and, you know, there's been a resurgence, you know, she was a black woman leading a rock band, yeah, which is a rarity in and of itself. Um, But I went back and there was some videos on YouTube and watching them, the raw energy, because (laughs) I, you know, I went to college in Seattle during grunge. Yeah. And, you know, I remember it was like five bucks to go see a band and you didn't know who they were. And just that raw energy. I was watching those old videos of your parents' band and man, it was there. You could see just that thing that was happening at that time. Have you gone back and watched any of those old videos of Bam Bam and what they did? Oh, yeah. Sadly, I reconnected with that material when my mom passed. So my dad, who he's not, he was never good at like holding on to certain, certain items he would hold on to like a ephemera of the time and like, you know, recordings and tapes and stuff. But the bassist actually held on to a bunch of much more photos and um, video content. And so I re-engaged with him when my mom passed and use that material to kind of cut a memorial video and that, so that would have been 2012. And that was when I started kind of revisiting their world and got more and more intrigued as an adult, uh, trying to like myself, trying to make sense of like, both like appreciate their past and who they were in their, in their youth, but also trying to make sense of actually how much of an anomaly they were. Um, Obviously more specifically my mom, in that era and honestly as you point out like to still to this day like a black woman fronting a punk rock band is still an anomaly in 2022 it's just not something that we see very much which just makes me appreciate that them that much more and i can see why people are starving to identify her as a pioneer of sorts and i and i can get down with that but the notion of like you know they invented grunge. It's just kind of a silly moniker. <laughs> <laughs> you you know, growing up with a black mom in Seattle, which, you know, can for all its progressiveness can still have plenty of racism. How much did you experience that? How much did you see that growing up and how much has that informed you, you know, especially with undefeated, yeah. which won an Academy award and, and was about a black high school football team. How much has that informed you as a grown up growing up with a black mom who did you see racism? Was it prevalent in your life? You know, how has that informed you as an adult? 
I mean, the, the answer is yes, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> uh, it, infor- it's, it's, it impacts every facet of your day all, all the time. It's always present. One of my favorite, I guess, theories, for lack of a better term, is, is W.B. Du Bois's double consciousness. This notion of, like he coined that term as a means to try to explain what the black experience was. And this is, you know, like at the, you know, whatever turn of the century or something like that. Basically being that, you know, you look at yourself through your own lens, right? You're trying to make sense of who your identity is, but you're also looking, and this applies to everybody, but you're also looking at yourself through the lens of society. And the fundamental difference is that if you are a person of color, you're looking at yourself through your own lens that is in combat, is always battling looking at yourself through the lens of society, which looks at you with contempt. And so when you think about it in that context, the every day is, is informing me and challenging me to think about and be face-to-face with understanding my place in the world as it relates to my skin color. And then on top of that, I'm looking at it through the lens of my, my mom and her side of the family. So when you ask if it informed Essentially, does it doesn't inform my work and does it like inform the, the lens with which I have on the world? A hundred percent. And in my case in particular, I also like, I found myself so unable to extract myself from trying to make sense of my place in the world that I just leaned in on it. So I was an American cultural studies major at Western, which just focused primarily on like did a lot of focus on like race, class, gender studies. And I just kind of continued down that path. And then I found myself integrating that exploration in the work we do. So yeah, it's fundamental. When, you know, we first met on Undefeated, you guys embedded, you moved to Memphis, you lived essentially with these kids and their coaches what did you learn about their experience and where they grew up that may have been different mm. from what you grew up with in a really, you know, cut down the middle Memphis is sort of cut East yeah. and West black and white. What did you witness with them and what did you learn about their experience of being black in that city? Oh man. <laughs> so it's, I mean, there a lot. <laughs> it's a totally different experience, right? I mean, for one, culturally, the South is just very different than, than the North in many regards. And, in, and as you point out, Seattle is also very particular in its own right. You know, some of the stuff that stuck out to me were there's two things that really stood out to me. One is, that's crazy. I mean, it's been so long since we were down there uh, to jog my memory about this. But one thing is, well, for one, like the, the fact that depending on where I go as someone who's mixed race, I can be a chameleon of sorts for better or for worse. When there, they, a lot of the community is shocked to, un, to recognize, like to know that I have a black mother. Like it is, which to me just goes to show that there's such little integration culturally between ethnicities that like you are either one thing or the other. And the idea of being mixed is just like an anomaly. I mean, or it's just like this notion of like, well, you're not fully black or you're not black enough. Right. Mm. And so 
the thing that really stood out to me, and I've always kind of wanted to do something about on this subject matter of this notion of like in communicating with the kids, I was always shocked that, I mean, there was a, I don't know if you remember, there was an assistant coach, a volunteer coach with the last name Flores. He's clearly Latino. <laughs> he is, his skin tone is a little bit lighter than mine, but he's brown. Flores is his last name. And they identified him as white. Mm. So anything other than black is just white. You know, my friend Kyle, who's half Chinese, came to visit while we were shooting. He was a white guy in that uh, their eyes. And this notion of when we talk about like celebrating diversity, it's always talked about through the lens of whiteness trying to accept and celebrate other cultures. And unfortunately, there's been a lack of making sure that like communities of color are also celebrating outside of their own community as a means to recognize that there are lots of other experiences out there. And so that kind of blew my mind in many regards is that honestly, like our, our educational system is failing our kids to, to look outside of their own communities as a means of also just fucking learning. (laughs) So there is that, I mean, the other big thing, I mean, which is just fundamentally different from, it's unfortunate that race and class is so tied in this country, but within, as it relates to, to answer your question, as it relates to my experience, the stakes from a class standpoint are so much higher down there. And in particular in North Memphis, where the thing that I think was, a big learning lesson for us and even it would continue to be a conversation after we would screen the film is the film kind of made a promise. It ends at a place on this note where, you know, some of our main characters may have overcome some of their challenges and now they've entered into kind of the next phase and the next chapter of their lives. And, you know, the film ends on this kind of high note with our main characters, money and OC getting an opportunity to go play or, or, or money not playing, OC going to play uh, D1 ball, money getting a scholarship to go to a D1 school, Chavis kind of coming out of himself and coming into his, his own voice. But the unfortunate underbelly of it all is OC couldn't stay in school and you know, money kind of had some rough run-ins and they both ended up getting kicked out and... But the, the point I'm making is what we ended up discovering is the frequency with which the recidivism towards coming back to the community, even if you get out of the confines of that community, are, is very, very high. And part of that is because you're raised in a space where you learn a very particular hustle to survive. And once you're out of that, the dominant world doesn't hustle that same way. It's a, diff- it's a totally different hustle. And a lot of the students that get the, the wonderful opportunity of getting out, not the overwhelming majority of them still are, have a hard time navigating the very real world, which again, is, is there's a, a lot of reasons to associate, to kind of pin blame on that. But one of them is just, we're not educating our, our kids to kind of figure out how to, uh, to give them the tools as a means to survive and kind of um, the way in which we see dominant culture the hustle of dominant culture. So that was huge. That was uh, a little bit of an eye opener for, for me, at least. For me, working on that project, going into it, 
I probably would have been, you know, a typical white guy, like, oh, pull up your bootstraps. Everybody has an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And as I watched and you guys would share all of the footage, which I think ended up being thousands of hours that you filmed uh, with this team. 500, actually. 500? It, maybe nowadays it would have been thousands of hours, but like 500 then felt like thousands of hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, it took us a while in post to whittle it down to yeah. an hour 45. Not a good shooting ratio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, as I watched the footage, because you went into these guys' homes, you spent time with them and the struggles they had. And there were a couple of things that just made me realize, and now that I have children, Mm. when kids grow up in, in that environment, and I really, you know, want to push people to see undefeated, to see if they, they haven't experienced what it's like to grow up in a poor black neighborhood in the South. I realized in, you know, you talk about the recidivism, they don't have a chance without an extraordinary uh, opportunity or their extraordinary people because I, I, what I saw in that footage and then ultimately the film that you and Dan Lindsay created, you know, their high school, I remember, I don't know if it was you guys told us or it's in the film, but they graded on attendance and attitude. Yeah. They didn't grade on their knowledge because they couldn't, you know, these kids weren't going home to, to tutors or, you know, having a parent there to help, you know, with their homework. I mean, they were going home to an empty home where, their parents or their grandparents, whoever was taking care of them was at work and wasn't there. And I really had a, really an epiphany of America to say, well, wait a minute. If we want kids to have a chance, we have to start in the home. We have to start with how are they being brought up? Because that's one thing I did realize with these kids, you know, there's a lot of well, they grow up, you know, there's violence around them and they grow up fast, but there was a lot of it that's like, no, they're still in a weird, awful way sheltered. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably the better way of, of distilling what I was trying to say before is that, that it is extremely sheltered. And so when I say the word, like the, they're learning a specific hustle to, to survive, it's literally survival, even, even coming down to like, where and how they are getting uh, nourishment, food, mm -hmm. right? They're absolutely relying on sports programs to, to eat well. If those programs don't exist, in many cases, they're like the only thing they're, I mean, we witnessed this firsthand, right? Like there's a lot of just like going to the like local mini mart and getting like chips and Gatorade and just crap, like just filling your body literally with crap. And those you know, it's, it's a still, it's becoming more and more common point of conversation, but still not, we're not still not having like national conversations about this idea of like food deserts. Mm -hmm. There were, there was not a grocery store for like a five mile radius from the school. Mm. Like these, they're not even getting like, you can't even get like milk and cereal. <laughs> like you'd have to go closer to East Memphis to go to a, a relatively healthy, you know, normal grocery store. And so when you take all those, that's just one of many variables, right? When you take all those variables, it does equate to when that bell rings and they leave the school grounds, there's, you know, to your point, like they're navigating the violence of the community. 
which is not their fault. It's a symptom of any most impoverished places, right? Again, mm-hmm. people are fighting for survival. Gangs is not wasn't invented within the black community in America. Gangs have been around for fucking ever <laughs> as a means of survival, right? Bigger, you know, building community coalitions, essentially. Violence of the community, not knowing where to eat. As in and this is we might be talking in broad strokes, but it's also very, as you and I both know, this was very real, right? Like most of the 70 kids that were on the football team, I think two of the young men had actual fathers in the home, two of them. So lots of fatherless young men uh, trying to find their voice at a very critical age and find themselves at a very critical age. If there was someone in the home, to your point, trying to make ends meet, often working more than one or two jobs. So they may be coming home to an empty house. They may be coming home with responsibilities of taking care of siblings, if not taking care of their own kids. And they're 15, 16, 17 years old. All these variables add up up to basically like trying to find means to survive, essentially. That's not a burden you want to put on a teenager when they're trying to like carve out, create a path for what their future of success for the future, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, now that I have kids and they're not quite teens yet, but the amount of energy and time Mm. that as parents we have to spend to create space for them to explore and, and learn and have experiences, it's in a disadvantaged home with one parent, multiple kids, maybe kids from a friend or a family member who's incarcerated, just the bandwidth necessary to hold a job and make the space necessary for kids to just have that freedom to explore, that freedom to be themselves, that freedom to have friends, not have to worry about where the food's coming from, not have to worry about their safety is it's mind blowing in a way, because I look at how difficult it is for my family, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, with two parents and attentive and, and working hard, the amount of effort it takes to look back at what, you know, the, the footage that we would watch that you guys was sent, would send to us was just heartbreaking because I never, until you're there, you know, it's one thing to drive through a bad neighborhood, but to see it day to day and how it goes, it really educated me in on a level that I hadn't been educated. You know, I, I played football my whole life and was around a lot of black guys who grew up in neighborhoods like that, but I didn't go hang out. They came to my house to hang out. Right. 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 And so I never got to experience that until you guys made this film. And it was mm. really profound. The difference in those homes versus the home I grew up in and the home that my kids are growing up in, it really brought home for me the just how hard it is for these kids, 14, 15 years old, yeah, to find their place. Yeah, the I mean, we it's it's funny. It, Dan and I both kind of had this revelation at the same time on a on a like a work call. Someone was pitching us something and they were asking, um, they were just asking about our process. Like, our our creative process. And I kind of realized in that conversation that most of our work, there's no clear, you know, usually there's for, you know, in traditional storytelling, right. There's, there's kind of a, there's a protagonist and an antagonist, kind of like a villain of sorts. And 
very specifically in Undefeated and even in LA 92, the, the villain isn't necessarily a particular individual. The villain tends to be kind of invisible systems. Mm. And that's what you're watching individuals try to over those systems are the things that are creating the obstacles for the character to either overcome or not. And essentially that's what they're navigating. And so when I'm hearing you say that is it's when you spend time in those communities, all of a sudden your, your eyes are open to understanding a bigger system that is at play that is creating these circumstances. Right. Um, and then these, and then as coach Bill will say, like, it's not their fault. They're fucking born into these sets of circumstances. You didn't, you don't choose to be, you know, this is like a, you know, when people are so up in arms about, uh, uh, you know, especially here in LA about the homeless population and not understanding why, you know, trying to pin blame, basically victimizing, right. Putting, pinning blame on, you know, individuals themselves who find themselves houseless. It's, it's, again, it's not like people are going out of their way and want to be in those circumstances, <laughs> you know? Um, so we've, we've kind of found ourselves often in our work where the trying to create uh, almost like the, through the themes and through the storytelling that the actual villain is almost kind of invisible and thus you're naturally rooting for your main character to kind of fight through a system more than anything. You know, you and Dan, your partner made Tina about Tina Turner. Yeah. And you know, that was a complicated project. I know. Yeah. And, and that one, you know, Ike Turner, her abusive husband, you know, there is sort of a more clear villain in that story, but what did you, how did you look at that? How did you experience that? And, and having a mom who in a very similar way and named Tina, Tina Bell, uh, (laughs) your mom, you know, how did you and your black experience and also just getting to know Tina Turner what was what was the challenge in that and how to represent that? Because it was a little more clear, but I'm sure there were complicating circumstances in her life, you know, not having self-confidence, whatever those things are that took her to that place. What was the big challenge with that project? Yeah, I mean, that was a yeah, that was a really complicated film to make. The I mean, look, the biggest challenge was trying to figure out a unique take on her story where we were not already rehashing things that kind of were already out in that were already kind of public knowledge, right. That were kind of out in culture, right. Cause she had, uh, she had written at this point, she'd written two books. The, there was a, uh, a narrative film with Angela Bassett and there was a, a musical coming out. So her story had been kind of, has, had already kind of permeated culture after meeting her, we had a kind of a particular, there's two things that really stood out. One was the way she talked about Ike, you know, we, so we, we went to Zurich. We uh, had dinner with her husband the night before meeting her. And he explicitly was like, yeah, don't bring up the, the, the Ike stuff. And we're kind of like, okay, you know, we'll navigate that delicately. Even though knowing like that's a fundamental part of her story, you have to talk about that experience because it, fundamentally shaped who she is the next day we're sitting in their living room 
and we can kind of hear her coming down the stairs. And the first thing she comes and says to us is, uh, there's been a book, there's been a movie, there's a musical. What the hell are we going to do? You know, what are we going to say in a documentary about my life? And that kind of actually like broke the ice in a good way. Cause we were just like, yeah, we're thinking the exact same thing. That's what we're <laughs> And she sat down and she just started talking and within 30 seconds, she brings up bike. But what was interesting is that what she discussed was this notion that it's not that it's off the, the conversation about talking about Ike and her experiences with Ike. It's not that it's off the table. It's not on the, it's not that she's not saying she's not willing to talk about it. It's she's acknowledging that there are consequences to it. And those consequences are if she talks about him too much, he revisits her in nightmares um, as if these experiences were happening just yesterday. And to us, we were like, Oh, the one thing no one ever talks about with in terms of the narrative of Tina Turner, the great myth, the heroism of Tina Turner, is she suffering from PTSD straight up? That's exactly what she's talking about. And so that gave us a point of, that kind of told us that maybe the thing we need to explore in this film is these two storylines, the story of the making of the myth of Tina Turner, and then the real bio- biography of Tina Turner, like Tina's own perception of her narrative that went out to the world, right? We've created this individual who's overcome all the odds. And as a result, we've calcified her on this pedestal. And as in a weird way, we've almost dehumanized her. Like she's just an icon. She's just Mm. a symbol now. And we've forgotten that this symbol has to wake up every day and make a choice to be a survivor. (laughs) Mm. And so that's the thing that ended up being the real critical focus of that film is how do you, how do we make sure that we're being honest and authentic to her story while being honest and authentic to her voice, which means that you're now going to see the, how the myth got fabricated as, as well. And where those two worlds kind of intersect with each other. Yeah. Um, we as a society don't want to know the ugly truth of our no, heroes. No, not exactly. Exactly. That's heavy TJ to have someone, you know, you didn't know her before you walked in. And to have someone share with you, because that's a very vulnerable thing to share. Totally. That's a huge responsibility for you and Dan to take on. Yeah, man, that's every film, though. That's, that's, why, that's just that's just uh, that's called stress and anxiety on our part. Uh, holding the stress and anxiety to do do right by somebody who's entrusting you with their life, essentially their life story. But all the credit is due is given to, I, I think it wasn't until the film was done that I, I realized how much, how lucky we were, right? We've been offered a lot of like celebrities driven stuff before. And usually we pass, we've engaged on some things, but you're really navigating like a brand and ego. And there's a lot of like, there's just a lot of walls that are put up. This only works with Tina's willingness to be totally vulnerable with us and allow us to kind of explore the kind of the, the, you know, the nooks and crannies of her life that have not really been unpacked. And that's a testament to her, A, giving us the trust, giving us also this, you know, we only, we tend to only engage with projects where we have final cut. So we have a lot more creative control and then her, her willingness to kind of share. Now, in terms of like, the one thing I will say, though, is as it relates to, you know, 
race is unlike our other work. Tina, I think there's a lot of stuff that she, I think she gets a lot of criticism for, for not, for almost engaging within uh, dominant white culture, but not being like a spokesperson for kind of like America, like her, her, where, for where she comes from in terms of like American Southern black communities, you know, this notion that she moved to Europe, she found, she found much more solace in Europe in you know, um, first in England and now in, in Switzerland. And I think she gets a lot of scrutiny and criticism for that, but it's also, we're, as we tend to do, we're, again, it's this kind of dehumanizing thing where you're not allowing her to just have autonomy for what she deems her life, what, where she finds comfort. And that's totally fine. Also, we're also assuming that she has the tools and is going to be a spokesperson to be able to deconstruct, you know, the deeply ingrained uh, racism within the U S that's not her job. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? She just got out of an abusive relationship and is trying to find her voice and, and just, you know, sing truth to power in her work and entertain you. And I think that was, we had to kind of navigate delicately in terms of not leaning too much into that world because that's not her experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To, ex- to hang that on someone is a lot. It's a lot. It's not fair. Yeah. What do you think? Why do you think, or did she share with you why she was willing to be vulnerable and allow you guys to explore things that as she shared, bring nightmares and bring back the trauma? Why did she share why she opened up and felt comfortable with you guys? Or do you have a sense of why she did that? I I don't know. I think it's, I think it's because she had already opened up that Pandora's box in 84 when she wrote I, Tina, and it just kind of, her darkest secrets were already out in the world. And I think it behooved her over the years to just be very candid with that narrative. I think in talking to her, we just started kind of taking two steps back and even discussing the fabrication of the story itself. And I don't think she'd ever been engaged in that way. Most, I think most people that cover her story solely, they they freeze her in time. And that is all they want to talk about is, you know, it'll like 20 years after leaving Ike, all anyone still want to talk about was, so how did you do it? Mm -hmm. And we were kind of asking questions about why people want to only ask, that's only one facet of your story. And I think that opened her up to want to like talk about all these other facets of her life and who she is. And and maybe just that sheer conversation of, of not just talking about the one, the one thing that's been calcified in our cultural psyche, maybe that just felt liberating to her. I don't, honestly, I don't know. She is, she's generally speaking, she's an open book. I just think people were not asking the right questions to try to mine something different. Mm. Had she seen the film? She did. Unfortunately, COVID hit, you know, we were in quarantine when, right before, you know, when the film came out. So we didn't get a chance to watch it with her, but we were emailing back and forth. We had, we had the final cut of the film. We were really nervous to show her, her husband had watched it 
and he really enjoyed it, but he was, didn't know how she would necessarily react to it. They set up a screening room for her in Switzerland. And I think for like two weeks, she would schedule a time to go in and watch it and then mm. cancel. And we were, we were getting really mm. nervous because more than anything, like obviously you want your, your participants to enjoy the piece that you, or not enjoy it. You just want more than anything, you want the, it to be an accurate reflection of what their experiences or what their lives are. But more than anything, we were also, she had, we didn't want to trigger her in any ways by having her watch this reflection of her life and go through some uh, and re-experience some of the darker abuses that she suffered from Mike. And so finally, I think after like the fourth time they scheduled a time for her to go see a screening, she watched it. And unfortunately it was, you know, because of the time difference, we were fast asleep, but she reached out to our producer, Simon Chin, who's in the UK. And they got on Zoom and Simon said that she was beaming, like grinning ear to ear she thought it was much more accurate in terms of what her experience was. She actually, she said it was, I was afraid to go into it, but I had so much fun listening and revisiting all these old friends. And she felt it was handled with a lot of care. We didn't have to cut anything. You know, we ultimately kept preserved the integrity of the film as, as we kind of envisioned it. And, uh, and at that point she was on board to put this out to the world. Wow, man. I, I, I'm, sort of tearing up here that had to be incredible for you and dan yeah i wish we could have experienced it with her we still haven't seen her since the film went out into the world uh spring of 2021 and uh we have yet to you know it film got into berlin we couldn't go to berlin <laughs> because of covid and it played all over europe and um you know then it premiered on hbo and I, it broke some I think it broke the, for nonfiction, it broke the HBO Max record for viewership and all these amazing things happened. And we just experienced it like on Twitter and on yeah. screens. And uh, so we haven't seen, we haven't actually physically been with Tina, not to, not only to watch the film, but also just to kind of like have a hug, have a meal and just say, you know, thank you for the experience. It's been kind of a weird, it's such a weird, you know, as all filmmakers have experienced of this last two years it's just been a weird time to make work and put work out there you know it's funny because you know we've both made several docs and you ultimately share it with the people you know and there's that pit in your stomach <laughs> just like i'm reliving the pit in your stomach right now because of the stakes of this film you know of of going into that so congratulations i'm so happy for you that she had that reaction. I mean, I can't imagine what was, what that was like. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. it, it you know, the more we talk about it, the more I'm just, yeah, it, I always get nervous to make the next film because you just, as you know, you, you make a project and you go through all the stress and the hell of making it and you firmly birth the child and it goes out to the world and then it's stressful to see how the world's going to react. And you're like, okay, the reviews were good. And then somehow you got to have that amnesia to just do it all again and to drag yourself through the anxiety and the stress and the mud. And then on top of it, that's not even including just like doing it well, like the process of just making something and making it decent. <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, after my first documentary, I remember during post-production, I was like, I'm never doing this again. 
<laughs> you know, it was a very personal film. It was about exactly. a rock band that had some, you know, some suicides and, and, mm. and they got back together and there was, you know, people had to bury the hat, you know, it was very sort of high stakes. I remember I'm like, I'm never doing this again. And then Seth Gordon, who was my partner at the time, we found what became King of Kong and off we went. And I was like, wait, didn't I say I wasn't going to do this again? Yeah, so, exactly. yeah, I've been through that. You know, you work in a team, which you know, for directors is, you know, a little rare, but you and Dan Lindsay, um, you had worked together on a film about all, th- of all things, beer pong yeah. before we met, which was, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I was good joining you guys was I thought you did an amazing job with what could have been a very one note story, but I felt like you really dove into that. And, and, you know, some of the alcoholism problems, obviously, with what was going on, but what is it about you and Dan that keeps you a team? What, what, what <laughs> is the team dynamic and why do you continue to work as a team? Good question. It's all, it's funny you bring up beer pong because it's as ridiculous as it sounds. That is the, the project that cemented everything, right? Is for people that don't know, we made a, our first film together was a film called last cup about, uh, a world, the world series of beer pong. And I cut it and Dan directed it. And we were, we met via this production company that was doing the, the film, but the company wanted to do kind of like a, um, like straight to market. Like it was like a three month edit or something like that, that they had, you know, that they'd scheduled and they just wanted something really stupid, straight to market, a bunch of like super brotastic, fratastic, and just showing like drunk guys doing stupid things. The, what ended up happening is Dan and I got really obsessed with the, with the community and the film ends up being much more about like the, the people that are really like take beer pong very seriously and are actually going to these tournaments to make a lot of money are all like post-grads. They were all kind of in their mid to late twenties, most of them pretty smart individuals and what we came to realize, it was really a film about kind of Peter Pan syndrome, this inability to grow mm-hmm. up, this inability to move on to kind of life 2.0. And that's the thing that really fascinated us the most. So you're really kind of watching this coming of age thing, coming of age film, where some characters literally kind of go through an existential crisis. It just happens to take place at a beer pong tournament. <laughs> and so I think when Dan and I made that, we realized our sensibilities were very similar, which is giving characters the benefit of the doubt and trying to humanize, like even on, um, and play with audiences' perceptions of things, right? Like Mm -hmm. even undefeated. If I, we always joked, if I saw like the log line of undefeated, you know, you know, inspiring football story, you know, uh, high school football team overcomes the odds. If I saw that log line and I was at a film festival, I'd be like, I'm not going to go watch that. But the, I think the thing that where he and I connect is playing on people's perceptions of things. And, and once we get them into that space, really humanizing the experience of, of, of someone so that we're drawing a, you know, we see film as a, as a, as a conduit for empathy. That's mm. when film is operating at its best is when it's, it's a, it's a vehicle to kind of empathize with another person's community, culture, experience, story, all, all, all of those things. 
So I think to answer your question, probably a, a number of things keep us working together. One is very similar sensibilities and, and intentions. Two is we're also kind of in a weird way, naturally um, combative is not the right word, but we want to like, we, we naturally challenge each other. So like, well, I remember, I remember yeah. some of those discussions in yeah. the edit room. It might get, it might get like loud, but I don't think people realize that that's just us. It's not like I'm disagreeing with him. I'm just trying to like make his idea better mm-hmm. <laughs> and it goes vice versa. So I, like I've always said, if we weren't working together, he'd be the first person I would show material to, because I know he's going to tell me straight up what his, uh, what his thoughts are and, and actually help deconstruct it in a way where like, I feel like I'm in a, in safe hands. Like he doesn't need to say, he doesn't need to say like, this was good. This was good. This was good. But you know, it just, just tell me straight up what is working, what is not. Um, and, and then obviously the most important thing, like any relationship, whether it's a creative marriage or just a family marriage or whatever it is, it's trust. I just, I trust that he's got, I, I trust that he's doing his pulling his end of the bargain up in terms of the work, but also that he's got my best interest in mind and the best interest of the film in mind. And whether we see eye to eye, some, you know, obviously we don't see eye to eye in everything, but I know that it's coming from a place where he's got the, his, the best interest of the film in mind. So I have to trust that that's where a lot of the, the intent is coming from. And yeah, that's, that's, that's you know, what I witnessed with undefeated you guys. It's, it's a really, really powerful relationship in that way. You really do. And I, and I'm, I, I think it was healthy. I'm not saying I didn't, you know, I didn't see yeah. <laughs> trade each other. I just, uh, what I saw was two people that really challenged each other to be better. Yeah. And it's still like that, you know, look like when, you know, we still work together, but I, I think there's all part of that is, Part of the growth has been, you know, I'll EP stuff on my own and I've, you know, I've written stuff on my own, but that's just us having a conversation saying like the, making sure that we're meeting each other at different phases and chapters of our own creative evolution. Right. And so, you know, it's like a, you know, if you think about, I don't, this might sound (laughs) egotistical, but like radio heads only better if they allow Tom York to do Tom York you know, solo work. Right. Mm. And I think that's the idea that we're at. That's kind of where we're at now is how do we support each other? If someone has a vision for something else that might not fit within the existing brand. Um, and we're trying to work through that now while still preserving in, in the integrity of what we've done in the past and what we've built. And so that's kind of the space we're in now. Um, mm. I truly think he's, he's got a really, really brilliant mind. I, I think we both acknowledge that we've really, lucked out because it's also the thing that has allowed us to we don't really divide and conquer but we can lean on each other to help navigate how this ridiculously complicated and also silly industry as you know it's just kind of it's it's a weird weird industry (laughs) yeah so my takeaway is TJ Martin and Dan Lindsay are the radio head of nonfiction. No, 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 don't ever say Yeah, that. no, that's what we're going with. <laughs> no, Matter of fact, like, that's what we'll title this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, man. This is terrific. I feel like I got to know you more. Yeah, man. Appreciate yeah. you uh, inviting me on. My pleasure, TJ. If you want to experience radiohead level filmmaking, please check out Dan and TJ's work. A few to get you started. Undefeated is available on Netflix 
LA-92 is available on Hulu and Disney+, Plus, with both available for rent or purchase, wherever you rent or purchase content online, and Tina is available on HBO Max. Thanks to Chase Hutchinson of Portland Mercury, whose article, The Two Tinas, filmmaker T.J. Martin on his new HBO Tina Turner documentary and his mom, The Goddess of Grunge, which gave me some good background on T.J. and his upbringing. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. And you can follow the show on social media, Twitter, at Let's Huddle With, Facebook, Let's Huddle With Ed Cunningham, Instagram, Let's underscore Huddle underscore With underscore Ed. And the show's webpage can be found on Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com. Scroll through their impressive lineup and search up Let's Huddle to get to the show's homepage. Reach out, let us know what you think, any corrections, clarifications, guests, or stories you'd like to hear about or from. Let's Huddle With Ed Cunningham is a production of True Stories Incorporated and is edited by Ryan Lindsay of Fushaw Media. The Believe team on the Let's Huddle Beat, producers Alex Disopoulos, Joe DeLeon, and Josh Fisher. The auto engineer is Carter. Connor Haynes and Cam Rogers help out with the marketing. And my first contact at Team Believe, Ron Husenstein, the chief executive. Thanks, everyone. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.